0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and although we've had a lot of authors on the show, I'm particularly excited to introduce our guest today. We're going to be talking to General Keith Kellogg, who has a recent memoir out called War by Other Means, a General in the Trump White House. Now, just to give you a bit of an idea of his career accomplishments. He was National Security Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. He was the Executive Secretary and Chief of Staff of the United States National Security Council in the Trump administration. He was a National Security Advisor on an acting basis following the resignation of Michael Flynn. He was the only National Security Advisor to serve throughout the entire Trump administration and campaign. He's a veteran of the Vietnam War with a Silver Star. He was an assistant Division commander for Desert Storm, worked in the Pentagon during 9 11, and has been awarded a Department of Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service. Now, he was there from Trump's initial campaign for president. He was there throughout the entire four years, right up until Trump departed the White House. Most of the decisions, the major foreign policy decisions that were undertaken by Trump, he was part of. He was having conversations with both the president and the vice president. He has strong opinions on the politicization of the U.S. military and I really do think his book is is a valuable contribution that corrects the record on a lot of things. There's been a lot of off-the-record books on on, on the Trump presidency and it's good to have an on-the-record account with somebody who's willing to speak out about his experiences. So I was thrilled that General agreed to come on the Van Maren show and to talk about his book War by Other Means, a General in the Trump White House. Here is that conversation. The first question I have for you, actually, is just an explanation of the title of your book, uh, which is War by Other Means. Could you maybe explain uh, that to our listeners?
1: Sure. And where I basically uh, picked that up from was, you know, everybody thinks about the military, thats you know, you fight, you you do battles in the military, but there's other ways to fight war. And there's a huge battle, wars in Washington, D.C., that are political wars. So it's war by another means, meaning political fights. It actually comes out of a a Clausewitzian book called On War, where the the, the politics is a a continuation of war by other means. So it actually comes out of an old book that was studied in the military for generations uh, called On War by Clausewitz.
0: So before I get into a lot of the, the very specific details of what's in your book, I was wondering what made you decide to write this book in the first place?
1: Yeah, Jonathan, it's a a great question. Look, the reason I wanted to write the book is I had been with President Trump. First of all, part of the book is on my military background, getting him in until I got to the political end. But the key part is on President Donald Trump. and, and, And when I joined him during the campaign in 2015 and then went into 2016, what I saw was completely different than what you see a lot of people see on a day to day basis. In fact, the first time I talked to my daughter about the book she said dad you ought to write the book and call it behind closed doors because what I saw in Donald J Trump was not some of the things you see in public in fact one of the very first times I was with him we were in there talking and he went out in front of a news organization and the lights went on and I thought to myself who's that guy What the guy I was just talking to and I saw him in his decision making his determination and as, even as empathy. Let me give you a good example. When we were in the middle of the COVID crisis, and I was at the, a member of the Coronavirus Task Force with the Vice President, he was, we were sitting in the Oval Office one day. We were just sitting there talking. He goes, you know, I just want Americans to get better. And I said, why don't you just go out right now in front of the press and say it exactly like you just said it to me? And he said, no, we don't want to do that because it could signify weakness and they don't want to see weakness in a, in a senior executive in the president of the United States. But I saw what he did and how he did it with everything uh, he did as a president. And I said, this story should get out from somebody who had been with him not during, not only during the 2015 and 2016 campaign, but spent every single day in the White House with him. I was there longer than Bolton, McMaster, Flynn, and O'Brien combined. So I saw him like, like no other national security advisor saw him. And we got on our, on a, to go eat, eat, know each other on a very, very personal basis. So I thought, I said, I, that needs to be said. And people may not like it because they say, well, that's not what I saw. I know it's not what you saw, but it's what I saw.
0: Just to backtrack a little bit so people get a sense of, of what your service was like. What, what was your service like in Vietnam?
1: Well, I actually was a, I started off coming out of an ROTC and was commissioned as a young officer and they went to the 101st airborne division and deployed to Vietnam. And I had two tours there, but the first tour I went, I was a volunteer back in those days. We really did have real life volunteers that went, it was a very, very professional army that deployed to Vietnam and fought very, very well. And I, and I joined a unit that was all volunteers, the 101st airborne division and went through some pretty unusual experiences, life and death experiences. And it was funny because the second time I went there, the second tour of duty was a lot different on, on the way it was organized, the way the combat units were set. And it, it sort of I remember there was an old there was a movie a few, a few years ago called Platoon. And I said, you know, that was not the Army of Vietnam I remembered. In fact, what they did in that movie was it would take every single worst case thing you could find in the Army at that time in Vietnam and put it in one platoon at one time. But I never saw that in the first tour at all. It was a very, very professional unit. And then the second time was a little bit different because I was with special operations forces going forward. But it was, it was something I had volunteered to do, wanted to do it, to
0: serve nation. Now, by the time we get to uh, Operation Desert Storm, you're an assistant division commander already.
1: By that time, I was uh, chief staff assistant division commander for the 82nd Airborne Division. And what had happened, it was kind of an interesting story. I had, when the invasion of uh, Kuwait had started, I was actually just turning over command of a unit in the 7th Infantry Division. And I was flown back on a special airplane all the way to Fort Bragg, North Carolina to make sure I didn't miss the deployment flow. And in fact, when I got on the ground early in the morning, what we call green ramp, that's where all the airplanes are set at Pope Air Force Base in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, was totally devoid of airplanes. There were no airplanes. That was the only airplane on the ramp. So I thought, oh my God, they've left me up here by myself. And I got I, a car came, picked me up, took me to the division headquarters. And I met the division commander. And I said, I thought you were gone. He said, Now nope, we don't even have any had any airplanes. I said, Well, the president, President Bush, just said that the 82nd Airborne Division was deployed into a, into uh, Saudi Arabia. And they said, Well, a little disinformation can go a long ways. So we actually flowed out there later in the week, in the, the month that followed, putting ourselves first in the line. Uh, in, A lot of people called us a speed bump when we got there, but we actually drew a line in the sand. And when we got there, there were six Iraqi divisions facing south out of Kuwait towards Saudi Arabia. And we thought, sure, he was going to cross the border. And we think the biggest reason he didn't cross the border was there was the 82nd Airborne Division, the division I just joined up with. It was in there on the ground. They knew we were going to fight. And I think he just said it's not worth going to fight against the Americans because we were actually the tripwire. Uh, and then we just continued to flow forces in. And it took us about probably a month and a half later to I felt comfortable that we were going to be okay. But if Saddam Hussein had crossed the border at that time with his six divisions that we saw poised to move, there was no way we could have stopped him. And, he, and we were where the oil fields were in Saudi Arabia. That they are all on the eastern seaboard for the most part. If he had come south, he would have been able to control all the oil. And I'm absolutely convinced he knew, could have negotiated whatever he wanted to negotiate uh, coming forward, but he didn't. And I think a big reason was because we were there.
0: I also know that you were working in the Pentagon um, during 9-11. What are your memories of that period? I
1: remember the next day thinking to myself after 9-11 that, man, I wish Americans could have seen how we operated that day because it was really professional. I was there the morning of 9-11 and I was sitting in my office when my executive officer came in the door and said, hey, sir, an airplane just ran into the World Trade Center. I said, man, I said, that's crazy. I said, it's a clear day. It's beautiful on the Eastern seaboard. So we turned on the TV sets we all had in our offices and I was watching. And that's when I saw a second aircraft hit the second tower. And I knew right away something was bad was going on. So I crossed over to the hall to the National Military Command Center to make sure, which I was responsible for, I was responsible for that, plus the J3 or the operations officer, Greg Newbold, for the operations and communications of all the, I walked in there, made sure we were all set up, all the things were going on, making sure we have good control. Walked back to my office, and just then my exec walked back in and said, the first thing he said was Sir was going outside on the hill pad outside the Pentagon. I said, oh, okay. Then a the second, about five minutes later, he said, that was a small airplane. And then about a minute after that, he said, Sir, it was a big airplane. That's when I knew we were under attack. It was a significant attack going forward. Then I moved into the National Military Command Center. And I, I set it up because the operations officer, again, Lieutenant General Greg Newport, wasn't there that day. He was gone. General Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was halfway across the Atlantic heading to uh, the United Kingdom. So it was me, General Myers, were the first two in there. And we started to get a sense of what was happening. And there was a lot of airplanes in the air at the time squawking hijack, because if, in those days, once you squawk hijack on an airplane, you couldn't de-squawk it. So we had a lot, a lot more than just three or four airplanes. And then we finally got General uh, Correction. We finally got the Secretary of Defense, Roosevelt, in there. And General Myers asked him where he had been. He said, "Well, I was out there, you know, helping out whether the airplane and hit the Pentagon." And General Myers, no uncertain term, had told him, "Hey, look, your place of duty is right here. You're one of the two National Command Authorities that that there are. He and the President. And the President isn't here. We're actually diverting him to Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. And." The reason we did that is we thought we were going to lose nuclear connectivity in the Pentagon because the Pentagon was on fire. And the only person who can release nuclear weapons is the president. And we had to get him in a position where he could issue, if necessary, an emergency action message, which the only place he could do that was at Offutt Air Force Base or the Pentagon. Because at that time, Air Force One didn't have that nuclear connectivity like it does now. Uh, So so we had to get him to a place he could do it. The other thing that was going on was that that the Russians had a major military exercise going on. It was was, was an annual exercise. We observed what was going on. And we, the president of the structure, correction, Rumsfeld, picked up the phone and called his counterpart in the the Kremlin and said, look, we're raising our defense condition level, which is always makes everybody pay attention. Because when you start doing that, you're heading towards DEFCON or Defense Condition 1, which is you're going to war. And it was kind of interesting watching what was happening because immediately all their systems started to come down. We saw the bombers landing, their nuclear command and control shutting down. They were sending us a clear signal, it wasn't us. So we knew something was going on. We didn't know what, but it wasn't the Russians for sure because they were just backing away as quick as they possibly could. And we were in constant contact with Vice President of the United States at that time, Dick Cheney. He was in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, better known as the bunker, the PIOC, in the White House. And probably the most stark thing I heard that morning was when he said, gave the order to um, Rumsfeld, when he said, you're you're weapons free over Washington, D.C. Well, most people don't know what he means by weapons free. What it means, Jonathan, is that means the Air Force was able to shoot down any aircraft they wanted to without asking permission. They just, once we armed them, they could shoot them down. And that was to protect what was going on. And and it, it was a very, very... Very disciplined way of operating that day, very calm, very cool. We weren't sure what was going on, but decisions were made very clearly with without a lot of emotion, as they shouldn't be. And I just saw it operate exceptionally smoothly, including. And then I took the team up to the alternate command post, a place called Raven Rock, because if we had lost the Pentagon, we had to have an alternate command post set up. And I took a small team up there to set that up. We didn't need it. I went with uh, former uh, Defense Deputy Defense Secretary Wolfowitz. Later that night, we flew back, flew over the Pentagon, was still on fire, came into the office, and the director of the Joint Staff, Scott Fry, said, you need to go home because you need to get some rest. I think the world has just changed, and it really had.
0: What was the journey like from, from that day when sort of history was, was kind of cleaved in two to ending up as, as the national security advisor working alongside both President Donald Trump and Vice President Pence?
1: How I got there, Johnson, was you know, after the military, I went into the business world and spent about 10 years in business. And then you reach a point in the business world when you're senior, you say, there's got to be something else I want to do. And I, and I went to a friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of Jack Keane, retired four-star general who was at that time a contributor to Fox News and some of the other organizations out there. And and I had breakfast with him and he said, have you ever thought about being a national security advisor to a presidential candidate? Because the presidential cycle had just started the 2016 election. And I said, no, but it got me thinking. And he said, well, look, I know too. I said, "I, I um, I know Bush and I happen to also know Clinton. And I said, well, neither one of them kind of, Excite me! The only guy who excites me is this businessman, Donald Trump. and he said, "I don't know him at all." So I said, "Okay." So I thought to myself, "That's not a bad idea. Let me see what I can do." So I, I said, "I started to reach out to Donald Trump and his campaign team, and nobody returned my phone calls." So I finally went up there, and because, and then I realized the reason nobody was answering my phone calls, there was nobody there. I mean, this was a shoestring operation as a campaign. In fact. The, the largest number we ever had was like 80 people in the campaign. So I got into Trump tower and finally got up to see him. And we had a long talk and I, you know, I, and I'm now convinced. And I say this kind of tongue in cheek. I said, the, probably the biggest reason he hired me, Jonathan was, he said, he said we don't pay very much. I said, I want to do a pro bono. I don't want to get paid at all. I just want to do it. And he started laughing. So well, then you're hired. And I said, well, that's, that's a businessman right there. It's easier to get me doing that. And so I, I I started, you know, getting smart on stuff and talking to him and passing him information papers. And he was slow on the uptake in the sense that because you're trying to get delegates, it's not so much the national security stuff going on. It's how you're reading each state, state by state by state, getting the delegates to get there. So what happened is, of course, we won the campaign afterwards. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, now that I've had a chance to work with him as a businessman, I'm going to go back and. In the business world, maybe make some more money do something like that. And he said, "No, I'd like you to come to the White House." Well, I found Jonathan. There's two answers to a presidential question: when you ask a question, it's either yes or yes, sir. That's it. So I said, "Okay, I'll come in. I'll come into the uh, White House," and I became Mike Flynn's chief of staff because I knew Mike Flynn. And Steve Bannon was what uh, kind of the senior guys there, along with Frank Priebus. And and I he said, well, we want you to be coming to be the chief of staff of the National Security Council. And I said, I don't know about this. And he goes, no. He said, look, and it was it was it was interesting because it foretold a lot of stuff. Bannon said to me, look, I'm not sure Mike's going to make it, and I don't know KT McFarland, but I don't think she's got the chops to do it. And I want you to hold both their hands. And I said, okay, going for it. So he said I'd do that. So I went in as the chief of staff, and sure enough, within what, two weeks, Mike Flynn was gone, and I became the acting chief until they brought on H.R. McMaster, and that's the other one where I thought, well, I'm not going to stick around, and then the president said, no, I want you to stick around and kind of, because you've been with me so long, so I was the chief of staff, and then when McMaster got removed, Bolton came in, Uh, that's another time I said, well, maybe it's just time to go back to the farm and, you know, do something else in life, and and I got, basically, I went across the street, which I never did, leaving the White House, never went across the street to have lunch. I always ate it right there in the White House. There was one time I go across the street to a little sandwich shop, and I carried always two phones. And one phone was a secure phone talking to the situation room, and the other was my civilian phone. Both rang at the same time. I just ordered the sandwich, sat down getting ready to get served. As it's being served at the phone's ringing, they said, in the old office now. So I said, okay. So I got up and left the sandwich on the table, basically ran across, ran through secret service checkpoints into the Oval Office. And then, and the executives pointed me towards the back and this is the private dining room in the back. And I walk in there and there's the president of the United States, the vice president, his, both of the chiefs of staff that was there, Nick Ayers was one and John Kelly were sitting there. And I I walk in, there, smiling. And I'm going, okay. And the president says to me, Hey, uh, Keith, i got a question for you. Mike, Mike, the vice president, has a question for you. Of course, I never called Vice President Pence Mike. He did. And so Pence looked at me, and he goes, you know, I've got a question. And I'm thinking all the time, Jonathan, is this Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, immigration? What is it? He goes, I would like you to be my national security advisor. And I paused. And in. It was a long pause and he said why don't you sleep on it and let's talk about it tomorrow I said no 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 Mr. Vice President no I, I'd like to do it I that was the last question I ever thought you'd ask me. I said that was nothing you know I thought everything else was coming at me so the vice president the president turned to the vice president and said okay but Mike I want him to stay as an assistant to the president which means I can pull on him anytime I want out there going forward and and I said sure absolutely so I stayed as an AP which the normally the vice president only has one assistant president that's his chief of staff. So I stayed as an AP so he could pull on me and then went over to Mike Pence to be his NSA. And I asked him, I said, what's your guidance? And he said, I just want you to make sure I'm ready and I'm prepared to be the president if something happens. So that was my whole goal. And because of that, I had, was in on every single meeting still with the president and the vice president. So I was the only one in four years who actually went four years of being in the, every single significant national security meeting that was held by either one of them or both in the White House.
0: You wrote a lot about the politicization of the U.S. military, and that's a really broad subject now. I interviewed Stephen Mansfield a few years back when he was writing about the extent to which sort of the woke agenda, the LGBT agenda was being you know foisted on, on the military and contravention of what the purpose of the military actually is. But with the the recent books that have come out by various journalists, and I'm sure you have, based on your book, you've got plenty of quibbles with, with a lot of their analysis. But do you have any idea what apparently General Milley was up to? Like, how does that play a role in 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 what you, when what you wrote in your book and the politicization of the U.S. military?
1: Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I think if I had the book had I delayed publishing, I would have written a little bit more about that part of it. I think Mark Milley went off the reservation. Here's what I mean. In, in, Truth in Advertising, Jonathan, Mark, Billy, and I go back probably 25 years. We were officers together in the same unit in the invasion of Panama during Operation Just Cause. I knew him closely when he was chief of staff of the Army and then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, worked for me twice, once as a young captain, and then he was a brigade commander for me when I commanded the Army's 82nd Airborne Division. So I know both of them. And I don't take my comments about them lightly, but I think what Mark Milley forgot is he forgot Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, who the commander-in-chief was, and he forgot that he only has three roles. and The roles are he's the principal military advisor to the president, principal military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, and principal military advisor to the National Security Council. That's it. He's got no command and control of forces at all, and that he should only stick to military advice. He got himself involved in a very, very political environment, and he he started doing things I think were really wrong. For example, he reached out uh, to to his Chinese counterpart, and the one that really strikes me is when he reached out on the 8th of January. We all know what happened on 6th of January here in Washington, D.C., and his concerns about the intelligence report about the Chinese were concerned that we might attack. Look, that intelligence wasn't there, and I'm not just saying that. Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, will tell you that. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, will tell you that. The Acting Secretary of Defense at the time, Miller, will tell you that. We never saw that intelligence. And I got the presidential daily brief every single day. It used to take me over an hour to an hour and a half to go through it. And then we'd have the briefings with the president, the verbal briefings later on in the day. Never saw it. And then he picked up the phone and called his counterpart. And he got himself involved in political environments saying, well, you know, don't worry about the political environment here in the United States. And then he said, Mark Milley said, well, I I told Pompeo I did it and I also told Mark Meadows. My comment to Milley was, hey, Mark, you're not the principal military advisor to the chief of staff of the White House. You're the principal military advisor to the president. You never told him that. You never picked up the phone and called him. That, to me, was grounds for immediate dismissal. And he's got himself, in, in, and I think, involved in these political activities. And I think what's happened, Jonathan, I think that this is part of the, what I consider to be the result of the 20-year war we had in Afghanistan, where the military leadership and the defense leadership became very, very politically active into maintaining a war that they knew was going wrong and very badly and we needed to get out of. And they kept, you know, say, one more day, one more week, a little more blood, a little more money. Get us where we're going. And so I think over time, this group of officers, senior officers, became very, very politicized. And it's just not Mark Milley. It's a whole cast of them that you see out there. And it's also a reason I have made a comment. we're going to do an after-action report, no officer in the military that served as a three- or four-star in Afghanistan should be allowed to even come close to that committee or any type of group that studies this, unless they call them just as witnesses out there. So I think Milley fell into that and became very politicized. He hasn't walked away from it, walked back from it. He didn't dis, uh, discount what he said to uh, Woodward or anybody else during his discussions, um, in, during the interviews with him. And because of that, I think that Milley should have resigned or should have been let go. And, and, and I think, and I stood very strong about that. But that's also the reason I opened up, Jonathan, by saying I, I know him as, as a, on a personal level for a lot of years. But I'm a very firm believer in civilian control of the military, and they've gone too far. And we need to change that. We need to reverse that trend to make sure that former military officers don't get involved in that. And he did. And I think it was a huge mistake.
0: Now, a lot of people are going to be wondering, when, when you look at, at the war in Afghanistan, it's so hard to know what to think when you're not involved in all the intricacies. You haven't you know, read all the books. And even if you had read a bunch of the books, it's hard to know. Uh, exactly which conclusion to draw now you were in the Pentagon at 9 11 and so you were involved with you know the first the first invasion and the first strikes what how would you explain it to to a layperson who wants to know when when did the war in afghanistan go from a just response to what happened on 9 11 2001 to uh, the war that you describe uh, in your book as something that needed to be ended and that trump was quite willing to end I, like in sort, of a, in sort of a layman's nutshell, how did we get from point A to point B?
1: Look, I thought the first two years were a righteous war. We went after Osama bin Laden. We put KSM in Guantanamo Bay. He was the mastermind of, of 9-11. We decimated Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The last 18 years was different. It became nation-building. It's something we should have never done. Look, Afghanistan has the moniker of graveyard of empires, and it's well-earned. Because that's where Alexander the Great in 327 BC met his demise. It's where the British met their demise. It's where the Russians met their demise and where we met ours as well. Once you get involved in nation building in a, in a country like that, it, it was doomed to failure from the very, very start because it's not a nation like ours at all. And then people would say, well, what about what we did in Korea or Germany? I said, well, those are homogeneous societies. You know, East German is a West German. You know, they're both kind of, they're Germans. And you look at the Koreans, the North and South Koreans, even though they're different, they're still Koreans. These were were tribal organizations where you have the, the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and the Pashtun that have been fighting among themselves for generations and generations. It's a country that did not have the infrastructure to go forward. And we tried to make it a nation like ourselves. We were involved in nation building. That is not the role of the military. The role of the military for the United States should be to deter a conflict. And if deterrence fails, you fight it and win our nation's wars. We forgot that. So we ended up losing over 2,000 great young men and women, over 20,000 wounded. We spent hundreds of billions of dollars, and we ended up losing a war. And we did that because senior officers created an illusion of progress, and it was never there. They kept saying, we're progressing well, we're progressing well. No, we weren't. We saw that when we came in. Trump saw that before we came in, and all of the intelligence reports we got when we came in showed that it was a losing proposition. And yet, at the same time, Madison, McMaster, and Bolton wanted to continue to pursue the war. And I said, guys, you've got it wrong. And And there was a huge pushback. From the defense establishment on President Trump, and you saw some of that actually with President Biden as well. And I said, look, you guys are making a mistake. You have missed the ball on what's going on. And I said, you're strategically, you're missing this as well. And of course, Millie looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, we're not looking at our strategic adversary that's growing, the Chinese. And he says, well, yeah, we are. I said, look, Mark, I'm going to give you one example, just one, to show you what I'm talking about. Today, the Russians and the Chinese have active, fully operational hypersonic missile batteries. Hypersonic missiles travel at two miles a second, Mach five. We still are in in research and development of hypersonics, and they've got active missiles. What's that mean for the Chinese? I Means you can't close your carrier battle groups close to China's coast unless you're you, unless you're willing to probably lose a carrier battle group because these missiles are ski simming ski skimming and can take out a carrier in a heartbeat and there's no defense to them. So my point was, okay, this was a whole defense establishment that was focused in on it. We went to nation building and they became invested in it. And President Trump said to me, and he answers his own question, by the way, John. He looked at me and said, well, why do they want to stay there? And before I could answer, he says, I'll tell you why. It's happened Because they've built something. They cannot go back and say we were wrong. And that was my biggest concern on why there needs to be accountability, and there hasn't been. On we need to look at what caused this, what kind of group thing caused this, to get where we're at with Afghanistan.
0: This is ex- extremely helpful because one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you is, is you you tell a, a much different story, and I think more importantly, tell a much different, paint a much different picture than, than than a lot of the other books that have been produced in the last couple of years, and particularly in this past year. And there's there's been a lot of emphasis on on Trump being a, a very volatile guy behind the scenes; that there wasn't much rhyme or reason to his foreign policy. And the reason that's believable to a lot of people is because you and you even make this distinction um, in your book. There's the difference between the public Trump, the guy, the Trump who's tweeting, the Trump, you know, who's 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 saying whatever he wants off the cuff in interviews and in rallies, and the guy that you were dealing with on everything from Afghanistan to Iran to uh, to, to North Korea. So. What was he actually like behind the scenes, and and, and what specific parts of the the public narrative we see over the last couple of years would you emphatically push back against based on what you saw?
1: I think it's important, because I think we're seeing a a lack of it right now. It's presidential decision-making. And Trump was really good on that. I used to tell him, Mr. President, trust your instincts. They're really, really, really good. And a lot of people don't have those instincts. That was because he was brought up as a businessman, and he had to talk— to the waiter or the bartender or the, uh, the people are putting plaster on the walls because uh, as a builder and he would do it in a socratic way and i was fascinated when he did it and we would get into the situation room and if there was a critical decision was coming he would he would before he would make his decision or a comment he'd, he'd say okay what do you think and he would go around the room and if you were in the room you were asked that question. It was a Socratic way of doing it, meaning he would always push back on you. And I knew where he was going each time. but he would force you to defend your position. He'd say, okay, why do you think that? Why is it going? And I was one of the very first times we're in the situation where I'm sitting there. And there was a young woman sitting two seats down from me. And he asked her, well, what's your opinion? She goes, Mr. President, I'm just taking notes. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. You're in this room. You have an opinion. And he would get these opinions, and then he would either make the decision right away, or he'd say, I'll come back tomorrow and talk about it and see where we're going. But he was never impulsive. He was always very deliberative of what he wanted to do. But once he made that decision, we were full bore. We were, we were game on. It was really, really hard, and he wasn't going to go back on it. And he was unafraid to make that decision. And it was fascinating to watch the way he made decisions. When we were in the Oval Office, I would always find this chair, the there were certain places where I always had high-eye contact. And I would sit there so I could have visual contact with him, and he would always go around the room and ask. And he would always come to me next to last. The last person I would ask was the vice president. But he was always come to me, and especially if I nodded my head or shook my head, he would look around the room, and he'd kind of look the other way, and then he goes, go, uh, General, what do you think? And then I'd give my opinion. And then he'd finally turn to Mike Pence. And Mike would, 90% of the time, Jonathan, you'd say, Sir, I'd like to give you my uh, comment offline. And then he'd say to us, which was a standard res- response from the vice president's gentleman, give me the room, which means clear out. And, and then he'd talk one on one with the president going forward. And generally, he'd come back and he'd kind of debrief me and said, OK, this is what I said going forward. But for the most part, I, I found his decision making really incredible. The second thing was his empathy. I mean, he would, he would do things that he didn't want people to know about. Here's what's an unusual one, is it has nothing to do with domestic policy. It's how we dealt with international leaders. And I'll use Putin as an example. When the COVID crisis was going on, Jonathan, we had an ability to, to test, with, with what's called the Abbott point of care test, Abbott being a device that you could get a, a, a test and you'd know if you had COVID within about five minutes going forward. Well, we had a major concern with the Russians because we knew they they had COVID going on, and we were concerned about Putin's national security team going down. And then you said, okay, then we've got a national security problem. So the president picked up the phone and called Vladimir Putin. And he said, Vladimir, how are you doing? Of course, you know, it was always done by translation, even though we knew Putin would speak English. We knew he would because we caught him a couple times doing it. But he would... He would, he would say, oh, you know, you haven't COVID yet. Yeah, we've got COVID going on. He's, you know, he's worried about it. He, and then the president said to him, look, we've got these Abbott point of care tests. We're going to send you some because this makes sure that your national security team, you will know right away. And then you can take immediate steps to protect yourself and the national security team going forward out there. And it was interesting because it was it was a good conversation. And Putin said to him, well, Mr. President, thank you but do not tell the American people you've done this. And it caught us all by surprise because I was in on every phone call the president had. And he said, I don't want the American people to think you're giving me a favor. You know how you're doing with the American people. And his attitude was, I don't care. He said, look, this is right. This is what's important. This is good because we're doing this because we can't afford, you know, Vladimir, to, for you to go down and, or your national security team to go down. And that was, we, we did it because we were trying to protect the American people. Uh, and then the third thing, and I think the most important thing is every decision he made, Jonathan, I firmly believe was designed for the American people. It was always designed what is best for America. If it's good for America, it's good for the American people, then we're going to do it. If it's good for the, if it's not good for us, then we're not going to do it. And that's the reason why, for example, with NATO, we used to beat up on NATO. He knew it was Article 5 was in place, an attack on one was an attack on all. But he reminded everybody there's also an Article 3. And Article 3 is the funding article that you are required to fund for your own defense and in the, in the, in the defense of the alliance. And that was confirmed by the Wales Declaration of a few years ago, when everybody would pay 2% GDP, and of which of that, 20% was on modernization. And there's only six countries that, that were doing it at the time, and we were paying over 3%. But he figured he'd beat up on people to say, look, you need to do it, you need to do it. And people said, well, he's anti-NATO. No, he wasn't anti-NATO, he was pro-American. So those were the areas I thought that a lot of people don't realize. And I said, this is what I saw in a man going forward. I wish, you know, Jonathan, it's it's always been my wish. that I wish he would have gone out front and and done it instead of being Churchillian. And what I mean by Churchillian, if you look at the history of, of, of Churchill, Winston Churchill, he would do a lot of things exactly the same way that Trump did. He would say things to the British people, especially in 1940, that he knew were wrong. But he wanted to make sure that the American people, the, I'm sorry, the British people were not dismayed or concerned, and he always projected himself as being very, very positive of being, this was going to be okay, we're going to come out of it, we're a strong nation. And I used to tell him that. I said, you know, you're more like Churchill than you think. And I, I, I'm a big believer in, in, in the readings of Churchill, as is the last national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, and we'd say the same thing. He's more like Churchill than he knows.
0: What do you uh, remember of, of, of the, the lead-up to the meetings with Kim Jong-un and the North Korea strategy? Were you involved in that?
1: Yeah, I was, Jonathan. And, you know, if you look back, you have to look at the very start. Remember, the, the, the discussions between he and Trump were not real friendly, and, and they were pretty acrimonious. And he actually called me at home one night in on my secure phone after he'd launched some missiles out there. And that's what he said... What's up with Rocket Man? And I'm thinking, who's Rocket Man? And, and so I, was thinking of, I was thinking of the Elton John song. And he goes, you know, Kim. I said, oh, sir, I'm just shooting up to you know, see what our reaction is going to be. And then I said, you know, sir, I think we got this wrong on what we're trying to do with it. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, sir, everybody wants you to have total denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. He's not going to do that. Kim's not going to give up a nuclear weapons. She saw what happened with Gaddafi in Libya we've got to come at it a different way. And he says, well, why don't I just talk to him? And I said, well, that'll be interesting because there's nobody in the national security realm that is out there that thinks that's a good idea. And he says, well, I believe in personal discussions with people. So what he did on his own, he reached out to him on a personal level. And, and he used to do that by the way, with not only Kim, but he did it with president. Xi, he did it with Putin. He did it with Macron. He did it with Merkel, He did it with Boris Johnson. He did it with anybody. He talked to him. And he wanted to reach out and establish a personal dialogue with him, and he's the one who actually got the, the summit going because he convinced Kim it would be a good idea for he and Kim to meet, something not been done before.
0: And a lot, he got a
1: lot of pushback, and a lot of the pushback was because they said, "Well, you know, you're going to be talking to Kim. You should let the bureaucratic process work, the State Department process work." He's, "No, you know, you guys have been doing this for the last 20 years, and you haven't got anything done." So let's see if I can talk to this guy. Well, the first time we had the meeting, which was in Singapore, it turned out to be a pretty good meeting. In fact, on the way back on Air Force One, the first call that the president made was to the prime minister of Japan, and the second call was President Moon of of South Korea. And they both said, look, I can't believe we actually pulled this off. We actually got to talk with him. And that started the relationship. And it It was a good relationship, meaning at least they were talking. And his attitude was, as long as you're talking, you're not shooting. And remember that once they started that relationship of discussions, he didn't fire any nuclear, he didn't fire any ICBMs, and he also cut back on his nuclear program. So, it was, and we feel, I honestly believe that if we had had a second tour, we, we would have gotten to some type of, you know, condition based agreement with North Koreans. But what he did is he turned all of diplomacy on its head. Trump did. Trump said, Look, you guys have been doing this for years. We've got nowhere. Let's see if I can go man, man to man and talk to him. And initially, Kim was very reluctant. Then he then he did it and he, and they became as as well as you could be a, a good warm relationship between that and Kim. And it's a and, and by the way, just a, it's it's a, it's a shift, but he tried to do the same thing with the Taliban. You know, he made the comment he wanted to bring the Taliban and Ghani back to Camp David. And in, in the defense is this is with Afghanistan, the defense established fell on its face. You can't do that, they're terrorists. And I said, wait a second, Mr. President, your instincts are good. And then I reminded him what Jimmy Carter did with Menachem Begin from Israel and Anwar Sadat from Egypt when he brought him over here to Camp David and spent 12 days hammering out a peace agreement. President Trump believes strongly in personal relationships, and he established that with Kim, and I think it would have paid off dividends going forward. And the one hook he always applied was an economic hook. We don't have to be shooting at each other. We can talk economics and trade, and now we can develop a better relationship.
0: What is the backstory from, from your personal experience of what happened with the killing of, of the Iranian Jenner Soleimani? Because from, from the observer's perspective, everybody went insane for about a week and predicted, you know, the Third World War and all of that. And then the Iranians bombed a couple of sand dunes in response, and, and, and that was it.
1: it. It all started on New Year's Day. If I was sitting in my kitchen and I get a phone call uh, from the situation. Room. You, know, you get a phone call like five o'clock in the morning is never good from the sit room or in the middle of the night. And, uh, and you know, they, they basically said at that time, what was going on is that our embassy was under attack in Baghdad going forward. This is after we had been a, we'd fired, a, they had fired some missile killed an American contractor, the PMC, the Iranian surrogates in Iraq. In Iraq. We had launched F-35s. We thought that had quieted the situation. Then there's riots in, against the embassy here in Baghdad. And I'm picking up the phone. I called the, the vice president and I said, Mr. Vice President, and woke him up. And I have the wake up criteria with the vice president, the same with the president. It has to be pretty significant when you can wake up the vice president and the president. So I woke him up and I said, Sir, the embassy's under siege. We need to do something about it going forward. So he said, Okay. I said, Has the president been notified? I said, Sir, as I'm calling you, because I had talked to O'Brien, the national Security advisor, president, I said, Sir, we decided to call you both at the same time. So you are getting the exact same information. At the same time, because I know the sit room was calling the president at the same time they're calling you. So what I'd like you to do, sir, is you call the president. So we called the president. We then fell in on the situation room. The president was down at Mar-a-Lago on on a break. And we fell in on the. We had a team fall in on the president immediately. We fell in on the vice president immediately. We started talking about what was going on. And we said, "Okay, what's happening? We knew at that time that the Popular Mobilization Committees; these are the Iranian surrogates in Iraq. We were attacking our embassy, and there was concern about losing the embassy. So we said, there's got to be some consequences to this. So the president came in, we came back out, we flew back, got him in, sitting there. We said, okay, these are your options. One of them was going after Solomon, one was to attack him with missiles. And this was interesting because at the time I said that we were sitting there in the Yolo Oval inside the residence, and we're talking about responses. Millie was there, the Secretary of Defense was there. You know, I looked at the president, I said, Mr. President, I know what your instincts are. Your instincts are always to super escalate, meaning you just don't go tit for tat, you know, go up one level, go up one level. I said, Mr. President, you need to go super escalate this time and go after somebody. And, that, and we knew that Soleimani was going to be traveling. And I said, you need to go after the guy who's the instigator behind this. And that's the, the commander of the Quds Force, the external military force, of the Iranians." So, and, and everybody around there said, no, he's he won't travel. I said, yeah, he's going to travel. And, they, and, and so my vice president Pence said to me, well, hey, Kellogg, why are you sure Soleimani's going to travel? I said, because of his arrogance. He's, and his arrogance is going to kill him. And, and sure enough, he stayed on a travel. So the, we looked at the president. He said, it's going to be your call. And he said, let's get Soleimani. So we said, OK. And, and I, you know, during that meeting, there, there was a lot of pushback. Well, sir, if you do this, we're going to start you know, World War III in the Middle East. He said, I don't think so. He said, ah, my instincts are not. They're going to, we're going to hit them so hard with somebody like Soleimani. They're going to be scared. The Supreme Leader, Khomeini at the time, was going to be scared. And he, would, he had right to be scared that, that he was next on the list. So we, we tracked Soleimani. He came into Baghdad. We had the hunter teams available to kill him. Uh, the drones were up. You know, the predators were up on station. He came out and we killed him with Hellfire missiles. Got him and then. Mohandas, which was the, the commander of the Popular Mobilization Forces, this stunned the Iranians. And, and the Iranians said, okay, they knew you're we dead serious. They knew that the Supreme Leader was next on the list going forward. So the president said, okay, let's see what they do. It was interesting what happened then. Is we got The Secretary of State got secure phone calls. He got a secure phone call from the Russians. He got a secure phone call from the Swiss. And the Swiss were our intermediaries in there. And the Swiss and the Russians all said to him, the Iranians will respond, but they're going to respond with drones. They're going to go after Al-Assad air base, and they're not going to hit anything. In other words, it's going to be missiles into the desert. So there was probably 95% of the people in the situation that next day when when it was happening said, no, this is a bullshit story. I'm sorry, BS story. It's not going to happen. They're going to try to hurt hurt us. And they fired the missiles. And the missiles hit dirt. And and the vice president said to me, We got lucky. I said, No, sir, we didn't get lucky. I said, Look, sir, every one of those missiles that were being fired are headed tipped by gloss which is the Russian equivalent of GPS. If they want to hit a building, they're going to hit a building because their circular error probable is like 10 feet. So they'll, if they want to hit it, they want to hit it. And I was sitting there with the president. We were all in a situation. Where just watching the missiles come into Al-Asad Air Base, and they hit nothing at all. And I remember saying, okay, now it's up to him. And we had gotten the heads up from the Iranians that they were going to do this, and it was their way of saving face. The president looked around the room. We waited for about 10 minutes. No more missiles came up. He looked around the room, and he said, we're done. He got up and walked out. And he basically told us, okay, we're not going to continue. They want to de-escalate we're going to de-escalate. And, and it was absolutely fascinating watching that because he was one of the very few in the room that had the confidence in his decision. We had super escalated. We had gotten money. He knew that what was going to happen. He called the bluff of the Iranians. It was done. We didn't escalate. World War 3 didn't start. All target complete. We were finished.
0: Now, there's so many things from your book that, that I could talk to you about, but, but I suppose we have the, the, another major subject that is still being discussed nonstop and is still a current political issue, which is is the riot on the Capitol Hill on January 6th, which you have a very unique perspective of, because you were actually the go-between between uh, President Trump and, and Vice President Pence on January 6th. So what did you witness that day, and, and how does it differ or, or concur with the present narrative that we see about what happened that day and what went on between Trump and Pence?
1: I'll be very candid. To me, it was not an insurrection. It was a riot. It was a mob gone bad. And the trouble when you get a mob going like that once it really gets out of control, you have to let it run its course because if you don't have the forces to control it, I don't care if you're the military police or anything you can't control it. I had gone I was in the Oval that morning of that, and I went with the president over to the to the rally. We had in six years of rallies I'd been doing. I'd been to a, a lot of the rallies. There had never been a single incident that had occurred from a rally that I'd ever been a part of. And the people there were the same as I'd seen in rallies before. And they were a little bit, you know, they were mad at what had happened, but there was, for the most part, a fairly jovial crowd going forward. And the president gave a speech and this is where we're at. And he'd gone back there. We did not realize what had happened until we started seeing it on TV that was going on. And that morning when I drove into the West Wing, I went back by the Secret Service. The Secret Service that day were in normal posture. They were not in body armor. There was not extra security. The inaugural fence was not up. The inaugural fence is that 16-foot fence they always put up for inauguration. There was no extra security measures being taken. So nobody had an idea that something bad was going to go down. And and I was in contact with Pence because at that time, Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor of the President, was in Miami. Mark Short was the Chief of Staff to the Vice President. He accompanied the Vice President there. I was doubling down because Matt Pottinger the de- deputy national crew advisor wasn't there either uh, that day. So I was doing NSA duties. Plus I was keeping, you know, my hands on both the vice president and the president. I was keeping them informed through the secret service because the secret service in, in the white house, they've got a room uh, underneath the, where the oval is, you know, I was able to go down there and talk to people and talk to, you know, w- what was going on, making sure the vice president was okay. So I was in contact with him and also the president. And it wasn't until we saw what was going on on the television, that we said, uh-oh, something bad's going on here. So the president said, well, where's the military struck forces that we wanted to have available Something, say hey, something went bad? Because a couple of days beforehand, he had said to the Secretary of Defense, have forces ready, on standby, if you need to call them into the city, we'll call them to the city if something does go bad, as a, as a precaution. Well, I'm sitting in the Oval, Jonathan, and all of a sudden Mark Meadows comes out from the back room, and he says, you yeah, Where's the National Guard? I goes, sir, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, well, they're supposed to be in place. So that I went out to the other side, and I just then I saw Matt Pottinger and said, hey, Matt, have you talked to Miller, the, the acting secretary of defense? And he said, where's the National Guard? Why aren't they ready to go? And we found then that Miller did had not want to send them into the city because of optics. He was concerned, how will it look to be sending military in during a large rally the, the bad view would get? Well, by that time, Jonathan, it's too late. Once you get behind a riot, you're once you're behind, you can't get ahead of it. Again, that was said a minute ago, you've got to get in front of it. So my comment to the president was, you know, so you're going to have to try to get ahead of this thing. You need to, you know, send some Twitter, if anybody's even looking at their phones to get out there. And the discussion was, do we do a press conference? They said, nope, you don't want to go there because people will start asking you questions. You're going to go down a rat hole. You don't want to do that. You need to set out something that will be seen by a lot of people. To try to defuse the situation? At the same time, I'm making sure the vice president's okay. And the vice president was under control of the secret service. They'd gone downstairs to the basement. The hard cars were there. Nobody was going to get close to the vice president. Uh, And I talked to Mark Short a couple of times by the phone and actually sent him a hard copy message. Hey, Mark, are you guys okay? He goes, yeah. He goes, stay where you're at. Don't go. Because we got a pretty good indication of what the secret service wanted to do with the vice president was put him in the hard cars and take him out to Andrews Air Force Base. I said, don't, sir, don't let him get in the car. If you get him in the car, you'll never see him. He'll be out at Andrews. So the vice president, God bless him, said, I'm not going to get in the car. going to stand outside the cars. Even though they kept saying, sir, don't you want to be in the car where it's more secure? I said, no. Nope. So what we saw was what was going on. We, and we worked, and Kaylee was wonderful about it. Kaylee McEnany was the, the presidential spokesman. She was superb and really calm. We said, sir, this is what you need to do to get ahead of it going forward. And the problem is, When you get, again, on the third time I've said it, when you get behind something, you can't get ahead of it. And we got behind that day. And we had to keep it as calm as we could. And the the president was frustrated because we got behind it. And he said, look, you know, we should should have been ahead of it. He said, where was the National Guard? And that's when we alerted the marshals. And we didn't know. It's something I found out that day that there's about 3,000 marshals you can call on immediately. So we call on the marshal service to get them out there going forward. But it was one of those, he, you know, he didn't drive it. People would say, well, he drove it. That's not true at all. I was at the speech. I heard what the speaker said in the speech. I saw the crowd. The crowd was a, a jovial crowd. They all, for the most part, went home. Someone went down to Capitol Hill. They did stupid stuff, a riot and and they, they entered the Capitol building, which they should never have done. And then we were just trying to defuse it. And then he got criticized for what really was going on. Okay, nothing you can do. It's one of those. It's unfortunate. A lot, I think a lot of things broke down. I think that's what will happen when you start talking about where the command and control broke down. I think it will see. I think the Capitol Police will bear some of the blame. I think the National Guard through the Defense Department will bear some of the blame. And then when you, when you have communications and you can't do that unless you physically went down there, there's not much you can do. And, we were, we were, and I constantly kept the president informed of the, the status of the vice president because he asked me at least on two occasions, you know, where's Mike and how's Mike? And both times, they said, "Sir, he's in, in control of the Secret Service. He's safe. He's okay. He's going to stay there. He's going to get it done." And then, that, and then we know. And then, Urban Legend took over after that. That this, I think, was generated by the president. He did not say anything to me. In retrospect, that was inflammatory at all. He talked hard, like he normally talks, and he didn't say, "Go down and burn the Capitol." You know, he said, "You march down there." He actually, I think, said the word peacefully. To do it, and, and it is—it's where we're at today. It's sort of like it is what it is. Jonathan,
0: was there, any, based on what you witnessed, uh, of any um, tension or hostility between between uh, the president and the president, which is what's made it into the last couple of books that have been produced? There was, some, you
1: know, common anger. There was anger because I think what happened is there was a schism between on what he thought the vice president could do, and and there are there were lawyers that were telling the president, well, there's there's latitude to do it. And the vice president would say, no, there's not. Here's the, here's the, and I, and I wish I had pushed the issue by the time it had, it, it had happened. It was actually too late. Pence had picked up the phone and called Vice President Coyle, you know, former vice president of the United States. And he told him what was going on. Coyle gave him some great advice, and he didn't do it. And the advice was this, ask the parliamentarian on the Senate floor, what his authorities are. Think about that, John. What if he'd gone to the parliamentarian and said, what can I do or not do? She's the rules maker. I think there's only been one time that the vice president has overruled a parliamentarian in the last 20 or 30 years. In that parliament, she could have said, do this or not do this. And I think it would have quelled a lot of the anger because then we would have gone into the process of what the Vice President of the United States is allowed to do, and what he's not to do. Instead of listening to the lawyers, the parliamentarian could have told him what to do, and Quayle had told him that. And, I, and to me, I thought in retrospect. Now this is sitting a few months later. Obviously, I said, "Man, I wish he had done that. I wish he had said to the parliamentarian, what are what are my options to do this?'" And there was there was friction because the president believes, and I and I believe too, Jonathan, there were some anomalies in the election. I mean, most people can't tell me that there weren't. In fact, I think uh, there's a a recent book that just came out by Molly Hemingway, who's a pretty, you know, astute writer, you know, the book that she'd written called Rigged, that there were some anomalies in the election. And the president was frustrated by that because we couldn't get any answer for the anomalies going forward. And in the process, once you get an election, which I've noticed in two elections now, once you get the election process going and the, the counting process going, it's almost impossible to turn it off, and I think the president was frustrated when he couldn't get some of the answers. So, yeah, there was friction, but it's but they have talked to each other several times, and I know that because I've personally talked to the vice president and the president as well. And uh, I mean that that friction is going to be there, but it's unfortunate because they've spent four good years together, and we we'll got to where we're at.
0: Final question is just looking at the the years that you spent with him from from the first campaign to to the second one and and everything in between. Of all the things, you know, there's Bob Woodward's book, there's Michael Wolf's book. There's been there's been probably a couple of dozen since Trump books have been an industry. What is the one major public narrative that you would wish to correct based on what you personally witnessed working in the Oval Office?
1: I wish the American people could have seen. The public persona and the professional persona, of the decision-making that I saw with Donald J. Trump, not only during the campaign, but during the four years he was president. and I, w- I wish they could have seen him when the lights were off, and he was sitting there in the Oval Office, like the time when COVID was going on. And I told you earlier, he said, God, I just want Americans to get well. You know, I just say, Mr. President, why don't you tell the american people are- I wish they had seen that because, because the public he'd probably get really aggravated if I said the public persona is not the is not the public persona. The, the pub the private person that you see here is an individual that I think was really good for America because he, he he was not a politician. I mean, the only time he was president was president of the United States. He was never a student body president, never ran for president of his class. I always was looking out for the the, the guy who was in Middle American in Washington, Kansas, not Washington, D. That's what I wish people had seen. And that's one, that's probably honestly, Jonathan, the reason I wrote the book, because I was there and I saw it. And you know, and, and it's one of those look, if you don't believe me, pick up the phone and call my daughter or my wife, who who saw him as well and what he was like. And they said, God, dad, I just I wish that had come out and seen what it was really like. I'd probably, you know, Jonathan, honestly, they'd probably get aggravated with me by me saying that to you, but that's the way I wish you'd say it.
0: <laughs> No, no, it it's all about what you what you witnessed from your perspective. And there's there's so many off the record accounts that it's good to have an on the record account. And and really, thank you so much for your time. You've been more than generous. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with General Keith Kellogg on his time in the Trump White House. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We have several more conversations in the upcoming weeks with authors of upcoming books. We do hope you'll buy General Keith Kellogg's book, which is released by Regnery on October the 19th. Thanks so much for joining us and we do hope you'll join us again next week.